if you would like to open your Bible to the book of Acts, uh, to chapter 23, we're going to be reading an exciting story, the adventures of Paul. So it's Acts chapter 23, and we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 31. So Acts 23, verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath oath, not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin, Petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him. So I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. And we will finish our reading there. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, of course, he does know how to tell uh, a good story. And I couldn't help but sort of have a bit of a flashback when I was reading this and enjoying this again recently. You know, as a father of five boys, back in the day, when it came, you know, to the old nighttime devotions before you went, you went to sleep, this would have been one of the stories that would have made the cut. You know, and I, I'm thinking at the minute as well, if we're studying the book of Exodus, 
It would have been slightly easier going than those chapters on the construction of the tabernacle, you know. So it's a, it's a really super story. What, what's not to like? Here's a story of an attempted murder, a suicide squad, and lots of Roman soldiers and spearmen and cavalry. And playing the, the key role in the rescue of the intended murder victim is a young fella who discovers the plot and informs the authorities. So it's a great story. Everyone will agree on that. But I want to ask the question tonight, you know, is that all it is? Just a great story. And maybe you come back and you say, well, of course not. There, there's so much more to it than that. When I originally spoke on this passage, it was in a, another church a couple of months ago, and I was given the title, Ambushed, God's Providence and Paul's Rule. And I found that title useful because we are dealing here with the Apostle Paul, and we're dealing with God's providential care for his servant in all that unfolded. So we are dealing with really important things. But one of the things I want to invite you to do tonight is to think, you know, after we have considered all that happened to Paul, and after we have seen God's providential care of him, I want us to ask the question, how does this relate to us? You know, are there any legitimate lessons, encouragements, challenges for us in this, or is it just a great story of what God did back in the day with the Apostle Paul? I'm going to really invite us to reflect on how this might apply to us today. So here's how we're going to proceed. The first thing we're going to do is we're just going to familiarize ourselves with the story so that we really understand what happened at that base level. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to then just stand back a little and reflect on the workings of providence in the story. And then thirdly and finally, as I say, we'll ask that question, okay, that's what happened then. That's what God sovereignly did in the situation. What's in this story that applies to us, that we can apply to ourselves as we seek to play our part in spreading the gospel just as Paul was in his day. So we'll, we'll think about the story itself, because whilst I say, you know, it's a great story, actually, it's a really ugly read. You know, this is, this is religious fanaticism of the kind that we're now familiar with in our world. In the name of God... In the name of God, and of defending the honor of God, men were prepared to lie and deceive and to commit murder in the name of God and upholding God's honor. And the thing, the thing to get the hold of as well is it wasn't just a few rogue 
fanatical foot soldiers. This murderous conspiracy went all the way to the top. It involved the chief priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin itself, the official leaders of the people of God, the moral guardians of the nation. It's amazing to read. And in actual fact, if you'd been working your way through the book of Acts, this was the fourth Jewish attempt to kill Paul from the time of his arrival in Jerusalem, just a few days before. And it's also, which is interesting, it's also the fourth time that Paul's life is spared because of the intervention of the Romans. The Jews, they tried to kill Paul when the false rumor spread that Paul had brought the Gentile Trophimus into the temple precinct. He had. They tried to kill him again when Paul addressed the crowd and said that God had called him, God was sending him to the Gentiles. They went bananas. They sought to kill him. The next day after that then, when he was before the Sanhedrin, he, he caused such sort of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the Roman soldiers had to intervene because they thought Paul was going to be torn into pieces by these competing religious factions. What an incredibly poisonous thing religion can be. This is all happening to uphold God's honor. So here we have a group of over 40 men who must go down in history as some of its least successful hunger strikers. They took a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until they'd killed Paul. And I don't know whether you picked it up, but that's the recurrent phrase in our section. Kill Paul. You get it five times in those verses. And the way the NIV translates it is that these men took a solemn oath. Now the word that Luke uses there is the word, we get our word anathema from it. What these men were saying, so that you get the seriousness of their intent, what they were saying was they were prepared to be accursed, to be cut off from the people of God if they failed in their mission to kill Paul. And within a matter of a few days, Paul is safely housed in Herod's palace, the official residence of Felix, the Roman governor, in Caesarea, about 40 miles away from Jerusalem. What became of those increasingly hungry assassins? We can only wonder. So what was their plan? Well, their plan was that their rulers, they would get their rulers to pressurize the Roman authorities to have Paul brought back before the Sanhedrin for further examination by them. They would request this on the pretext of gathering more information so that when Paul's case 
came to be heard under Roman law, they could explain more accurately what the problem of Paul was. Now, it was all a ruse. Lying in wait on the journey from the barracks to the Sanhedrin was a group of armed assassins ready to kill Paul. Alas, for our hungry conspirators, word of their wicked plan leaked out. Somehow, a nephew of Paul got wind of their scheme. And he managed to gain access to Paul and was able to share with him the details of the murder plot. And Paul then, in response to what he heard, he called one of the centurions and he impressed upon him the need for the young man to be taken to the commander because he had important information to share with him. And the commander dealt sensitively with the situation. He took the information on board and then sent the young fella away, sworn to secrecy. And what followed was actually a third nighttime escape for the Apostle Paul, although this would definitely rank as his most comfortable one. Previously, some believers had packed him off in a basket over a wall in the city of Damascus. And sometime later, he was smuggled out of a seething Thessalonica as a marked man. But here, we're told, Paul rode on horseback with a sizable detachment of soldiers forming a military escort. And sent with the convoy was a letter from the commander in Jerusalem to the overall governor of Judea, in which the details of the plot were explained and the need for Governor Felix to personally hear Paul's case. And that's where our passage, that's where we stopped in our reading tonight. So let's come now to think a little bit, now that we know the nuts and bolts of the story, let's come to think a little about the workings or the outworkings of providence in the story. So I want to ask you a question. How was it that Paul escaped this assassination attempt? I wonder how you would answer that. Because I think you can answer that question in two ways. Or at two levels. First of all, you could quite legitimately answer that by saying, Paul escaped this assassination attempt because information leaked out. What was being planned was overheard by someone who just happened to have a family connection to the intended victim. And this individual, Paul's young nephew, he managed to gain access to Paul in his detention. How he managed, we're not told. Paul then, when he heard... He confided in one of the centurions on duty that day and he decided to go along with the prisoner's request. He passed it up the chain of command to the commander of the Jerusalem garrison and he, for his part, decided to act favorably towards Paul in the situation. Now, it may well be... (laughs) 
that Claudius Lysias, the commander, he saw an opportunity for himself in the situation. For if you read his letter carefully, you'll notice that he has himself rescuing Paul from the Jews because he discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen. The actual order of events, if you read it, was that he actually suspected Paul of being a notorious Egyptian terrorist who had led a revolt, and he had actually given the order for Paul to be flogged. And it was only at that point when Paul piped up and informed him of his Roman citizenship, it was only at that point that Claudius Lysias actually stepped in and took a personal interest in Paul's safety and fair trial. But how did Paul escape the assassination attempt? Because of a careless word or or, or an overheard conversation. Because of a family connection. Because of a sympathetic soldier. Because of an opportunistic official. That's all true, guys. That is all true. But whilst it's wholly true, it's not the whole truth. For the reason that Paul escaped can be explained in another way, at another level. Listen to what Paul was told by Christ himself on day one of his Christian life, on the road to Damascus. This is from Acts 26, where the Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony with King Agrippa. Now listen to what he says. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I will rescue you from your own people. Now that is general in nature, that promise. But if you go back to our passage for today, the verse before I started to read is all important. If you go back to Acts 23 and verse 11, this is Paul when he's in prison. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Let that sink in. Can we now interpret what happened in Paul's situation in a different way? At a different level. Yes, word did leak out. The fact that it was one of Paul's relatives who became aware of the plot really did matter. 
that it was that particular centurion on duty on that day who chose to act in the way he did was highly significant. That Claudius Lysias saw an angle for himself to enhance his reputation with the governor probably did play its part. But behind it all, running through it all, over it all, was the work of providence directing events in accordance with God's will. And you see that verse, Acts 23, that I just read there, Acts 23, verse 11. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify about me in Rome. That gives you the interpretive grid for the rest of the book of Acts. Everything that follows in the book of Acts is the outworking of you must also testify about me in Rome. You know, read those chapters. Leaders will lie about Paul. Fanatics will attempt to kill him. Government officials will ignore him. Paul will experience a prolonged period of time, a few years, in prison. He will experience shipwreck in the ocean. But over it all, we can read these words. You must also testify about me in Rome. So how does this relate to us? Is it just a great story of what God did for Paul back in the day? Well, I want to suggest three implications, three applications of what we have been considering today. Number one, God's providential care and sovereign control. It could be tempting, you see, to say to ourselves, absolutely, yep, yep, we can see the work of providence in this story. But come on, this is the Apostle Paul. And we all know that he had an absolutely key role to play in the advancement of the gospel. And not only that, as, as we have seen, you know, Paul had specific promises from God spoken directly to him by Christ himself. So the type of thing that happens here, you know, that's what you're going to get when it's Paul with all those promises. And who would want to argue with that? Paul did play a unique role in the advance of the gospel. He, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And yes, God did give him particular promises to galvanize him in the challenging situations that he faced. But are we not entitled to the same assurance of God's ongoing providential care as we serve him in our day? 
I think we are. I am not suggesting that we will be given specific promises spoken directly from Christ as Paul experienced. But what about, for example, Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10? We use verses 8 and 9 in our evangelism. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now listen. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if God has prepared in advance good works for us to do, and we are seeking to follow him in our lives, can we not be confident of God's providential care and sovereign control over us in every aspect of our lives? I suggest to you that we can. We can trust that God is in control, that he knows what he's doing, even when life takes us in a direction that we neither expected nor would have chosen for ourselves. We can place, as believers, we can place all our weight on the truth of Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that brings me to a second implication or a second application. This encourages me to surrender my life to God. I can entrust my life to God. But let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Trust in God's providential care and sovereign control does not mean that I believe God will always be there to protect me from all the bad things that can happen in life. You see, let's take our cue from the Apostle Paul. What did God's providential care mean for Paul? Answer? A life that had suffering stamped all over it. And yet, a life that was eternally significant at every turn. Paul knew, and every Christian can know it too, that the story of our life is written into the greatest story of all. And that is the story of God's grace flowing through human history in fulfillment of his eternal purpose. We can live our lives knowing that they are eternally significant and that nothing happens to us 
Nothing that happens to us is the result of random chance. Luck is for pagans. And I mean that quite literally. They actually had their goddess of luck. The Greeks called her Tyche. The Romans gave her the name Fortuna. She was often portrayed as this blindfolded figure. Randomly. Indiscriminately. Purposelessly. Dispensing her treasures of health and wealth and success. How utterly tragic. To live your life. Hoping that good luck will be your portion. As believers, we can place our lives into the sovereign and loving hands of our God, knowing that He will be faithful to us at all times and that nothing will enter our lives that is not first passed through His vetting fingers. Third and final point. This makes me prayerful, not passive. You see, one of the potential dangers of having a high view of God's providential care and sovereign control is that we could become fatalistic. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Believers are not meant to be passive. We're not Stoics simply accepting the impersonal outworkings of fate. Absolutely not. We are called to engage with God as we follow Him and pursue His will being carried out in our lives. Take Paul again as our example. You know, years later, he did indeed bear witness for Christ at Rome. He did so as a prisoner, with his life on the line. But here's what he wrote to his Philippian brothers and sisters. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result... It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And Paul goes on to tell them then that he's awaiting his trial. But this is what he says as he contemplates his trial. I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Also, as part of that same body of prison correspondence, he wrote this to the Ephesians. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, 
words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Paul had total trust in the guiding hand of God upon his life. But that did not issue in a spiritual shrug of the shoulders. No. He prays for God's intervention in his life. And he calls on others to pray for God's intervention in his life. He asks them to pray with him for courage, for clarity when he speaks, for openings and opportunities for the gospel. You see, it's clear that Paul believed in God's providential care and sovereign control And he believed in the power of prayer to impact both the present and the future. And that's how we're called to live. Confident that the Lord is watching over us and guiding us safely home. But as we journey with the Lord, we are his servants in this world and we're on a mission with him. And we invite him into all the circumstances of our lives. We ask him to strengthen us. To grant us wisdom. To give us the right words to say. To confront obstacles. And to challenge the strongholds of sin and Satan that we encounter. There's nothing limp or passive about believing in God's providential care and sovereign control. Brothers and sisters, let's leave here tonight refreshed in our confidence that the Lord is in absolute control of our lives. And his control extends to the very details of our lives. We may not be Paul's, but each of us belongs to the same God. And every one of us who has responded to Christ has their life story written into his great story. So let's yield our lives afresh to him. Let's hand them over. And let's go forward, prayerfully grasping the significance of our lives and bringing every moment, every circumstance, every relationship, every challenge, every opportunity, let's bring them to him for his intervention in our lives. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.